0: Today's lecture is about the portfolio diversification uh, and about uh, supporting financial institutions, n- notably mutual funds. Uh, and uh, it's actually a kind of a crusade of mine. Uh, I believe that the world needs more portfolio diversification. And that might sound to you a little bit uh, uh, odd, but I think it's absolutely true. That the same kind of cause that Emma Thompson goes through, uh, which is to help the poor people of the world, uh, can be advanced through portfolio diversification, and I, I seriously mean that—that that there are a lot of human hardships that can be solved by diversifying portfolios. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about today applies not just to comfortable wealthy people, but it applies to everyone, uh, and. So, it's really about risk. When when there's a bad outcome for anyone, that's the outcome of some random draw. Uh, When people get into real trouble uh, in in their lives, it's because of a sequence of bad events that push them into an unfortunate position. And very often, financial uh, risk management is part of the thing that prevents that from happening. Okay, so um, the first. Uh, let me go to. I want to start this lecture with some mathematics, uh, and it's a continuation of the second lecture where I talked about um, the, the principle of of, uh, di- of dispersal of risk, and I want now to carry that forward into something a little bit more focused on the portfolio problem. So I'm going to start this lecture with the be- a discussion of uh, how one constructs a portfolio, and what is the mathematics of it. And that will lead us into the capital asset pricing model, uh, which is the cornerstone of a lot of thinking in finance. Uh, and I'm going to go through this rather quickly, because there are other courses yet at, at, at Yale that will cover this more thoroughly. Notably, uh, John Jonakopoulos' Econ 251. But I think we can get the basic points here. Uh, And so let's start with the basic idea. I want to just say it in the simplest possible terms. Uh, What is it that we, first of all, a portfolio, let's define that. A portfolio is the collection of assets that you have, financial assets, tangible assets. What you, it's your wealth. The pr- the first and fundamental principle is you care only about the total portfolio. You don't want to be someone like the fisherman who cl- who boasts about one big fish that he caught, because it's not. We're talking about livelihoods. It's all the fish that you caught, and so there's nothing to be proud of if you had one big success. Uh, so that's the first. Very basic principle. You agree with me on that? So, when we say portfolio management, we mean managing everything that gives you economic benefit. Okay. Now, underlying our theory is the idea that we measure the outcome of your investment in your portfolio by the mean of the return on the portfolio and the variance of the return on the portfolio. The return, of course, in any given time period. Is the percentage increase in the portfolio? Or it could be a negative number, it could be a decrease. (laughs) And the principle is that you want the expected value of the return to be as high as possible given its variance. And you want the variance of the return on the portfolio to be as low as possible given the return, right? Because High expected return is a good thing. You know, you could say, I think my, ex- my portfolio has an expected return of 12%. That would be better than if it had an expected return of 10%. But on the other hand, you don't want high variance because that's risk. <coughs> uh, and so both of those matter. And in fact, different people might make different choices about how much risk they're willing to bear to get a higher expected return. But ultimately, uh, everyone agrees I th- that's the premise here that for the s- if it's if you're comparing two portfolios with the same variance then you want the one with the higher expected return and if you're p- comparing two portfolios with the same expected return you want the one with the lower variance all right is that clear and okay so let's talk about uh, i wanted to just give it in a very intuitive term suppose we had a lot of different stocks that we could put into a portfolio, and suppose they're all independent of each other. That means there's no correlation. We talked about that in lecture two. There's no correlation between them, uh, and uh, that means that uh, the uh, variance. And, and I want to talk about equally weighted portfolio. So, uh, so we're going to have. N independent assets. Okay, they could be stocks. Okay. Uh, and each one has a standard deviation of return. Call that sigma. Okay. And let's suppose that all of them are the same. They all have the same standard deviation. And we're going to call R is the expected return of these assets. Then we have something called the square root rule, which says that the standard deviation of the portfolio equals. The standard deviation of one of the assets divided by the square root of n. Can you read this in the back? Am I making that big enough? Just, <laughs> just barely? Okay. So uh, th- this is a special case, though, because I've assumed that the assets are independent uh, of each other, which isn't usually the case. Uh, so it's like in an insurance world where people imagine they're insuring people's lives and they think that their deaths are all independent. Uh, I'm transferring this to the portfolio management problem, and you can see it's the same idea. All right, so uh, I've, I've made a very special case that this is the case of equally weighted portfolio. So, uh, th- but it's a very important point. I d- if you see these very simple math that I'm showing up here. The the return on the portfolio is R. But the standard deviation of the portfolio is sigma all over the square root of n. So the optimal thing to do if you live in a world like this is to get n as large as possible. And you can reduce the standard deviation of the portfolio very much. And there's no cost in terms of expected return. So in this simple world, you'd want to make, a uh, you know, hundred or a thousand or whatever you could. And if, if suppose you could find ten thousand independent assets, then you could drive the uncertainty about the portfolio practically to zero, right? Because the square root of ten thousand is a hundred. So whatever the standard deviation of the portfolio is, you would divide it by a hundred, and it would become really small. So in the if if you can find assets that ha- all have that are all independent of each other. You can reduce the variance of the portfolio very far, and that's that's the basic, uh, the basic uh, principle of of portfolio diversification. Um, that's what portfolio managers are supposed to be doing all the time. Okay. Uh, now I want to be more general than this and talk about the real uh, case. Uh, in the real world, uh, we don't have this. The problem that assets are independent; they tend, the different stocks tend to move up and down together, and so we don't have the ideal world that I just described. But to some extent, we do, and so we want to think about diversifying in this world. So um, now I want to talk about uh, forming a portfolio. Where the assets are not independent of each other but are correlated with each other. Okay? Uh, And uh, so, what I'm going to do now, uh, let's start out with the case where, now it's going to get a little bit more complicated if we allow, if we drop the independence assumption. I'm going to drop more than the independence assumption. I'm going to assume that the assets don't have the same expected return and they don't have the same expected variance. Okay, so I'm going to let's do the two asset case. All right, and uh, there's uh, n equals two, but not independent. Okay, so uh, not independent, or not uh, not not necessarily independent. So uh, asset one has expected return r1. No, this is different. I was assuming a minute ago that they're all the same. It has standard. This is the expectation of the return on asset one. And r2 is the expectation of the return on. A, I'm sorry. Uh, sigma 1 is the standard deviation of the return on asset 1 and we have the same for asset 2 it has an expected return of r2 it has a a uh, standard deviation of return of sigma 2 and those are the inputs into our analysis. Okay. One more thing: we have. To, I, I said they're not independent, so uh, we want to. Uh, we have to talk about the uh, uh, covariance between the returns. So we're going to have the covariance between R1 and R2, which you can also call sigma 12. And those are the inputs to our analysis. And so, what we want to do now is compute the mean and variance of the portfolio, or the mean and standard deviation, since standard deviation is the square root of the variance, uh, for different combinations of the portfolios. And I'm going to generalize from our simple story even more by saying that uh, let's not assume that we have equally weighted. So, we're going to put X1 dollars. Let's say we have $1 to invest. We can scale it up and down, it doesn't matter. But let's say it's $1. We're going to put X1 in asset 1. And that leaves behind 1 minus X1 in asset 2. Okay? Because we have $1 total. We're not going to restrict X1 to be a positive number. Because, as you know and find, or you should know, you can hold negative quantities of asset. That's called shorting them. You can call your broker and say, "I'd like to short stock number one." And what we'll do, the broker will do is borrow the shares on your behalf and sell them, and then uh, you, you own negative shares. So we're not going to. Uh, X one can be anything, uh, and, uh, and X. this, this is X two. Equals. 1 minus x1. Uh, so x1 plus x2 equals 1. Okay. Now we just want to compute what is the uh, mean and variance of the portfolio. And that's a simple th- uh, arithmetic uh, based on what we talked about before. So I'm going to erase this and The uh, portfolio uh, mean and variance will depend on x1 in a way that if, if you put if you made x1 equal one, it would be asset one, and if you made x1 equal zero, then it would be the same as asset two returns. But in between, if some other number, it'll be some blend of the. The, the mean and variance of the portfolio will be some blend of the mean and variance of the two assets. So the um, the re- portfolio expected return uh, is going to be given by the summation i equals one to n. X sub i, R sub i. In this case, since n equals two, that's x1 R1 plus x2 R2, or that's x1 uh, R1 plus 1 minus x1 R2, uh, so, uh, and and that. That's the expected return on the portfolio. And the uh, variance of the portfolio, uh, sigma squared, uh, this is the portfolio variance, that's the square of the standard deviation, uh, is equal to x1 squared sigma1 squared plus x2 squared sigma2 squared. Plus two x one x two sigma one two, and that that's just the f- uh, formula for the variance of the portfolio uh, as a function of now. Since they they have to sum to one, I can write this as x one squared sigma one squared plus 1 minus x1 squared sigma 2 squared plus 2x1 1 minus x1 sigma 1, 2. And so that uh, together traces out. uh, I I can choose any value of x1 I want. It can be any number from minus infinity to plus infinity. uh, And that shows me then the, for any value of x1, I can compute. Uh, what R is and what sigma squared is, and I can then describe the opportunities I have from investing that depend on these. So um, now, one thing to do is to solve uh, uh, x uh, solve the equation for R uh, for x one, and I can then uh, recast the variance in terms of R, and so that gives us the variance of the portfolio as a function of the expected return of the portfolio. Okay, uh, and so let me just uh, solve this for. Uh, let's solve x one for R. So I've got uh, uh, this should be x. Did I make a mistake there? X one R one. So. Uh, It says that R minus R2 is equal to X1 uh, R1 minus R2. So X1 equals R minus R2 all over R1 minus R2. And I can substitute this into this equation, and I get the portfolio variance as a function of the. Portfolio expected return r, and that that's all the basic math that uh, that we need. So if I do that, I get what's called the uh, frontier for the portfolio, and I have an example on the screen here, uh, but it shows other things. But let me just uh, rather than. Um, uh, Maybe I'm showing too many things at once. Let me just draw it for, I'll leave that up for now, but we're, we're moving to that. Uh, what we're doing here is, uh, maybe I'll pull this down. The, uh, with two assets, uh, if I plot the uh, expected annual return, R, on this axis, And I plot the variance of the portfolio on this axis. What we have, I'm sorry, the standard deviation of the portfolio, standard deviation of the portfolio return. uh, Then it tends to look. It looks something like this. It's a hyperbola uh, that. uh, there's a minimum variance portfolio, the minimum variance, where this sigma is as small as possible. Uh, and there's an, and then there's many other possible portfolios, all that lie along this curve. And so uh, the the curve includes points on it, which would represent the initial assets. So uh, for example. We might have, uh, this is asset 1 and we might have uh, something here. This could be asset 2. Depending on uh, where the uh, assets' expected returns are and the assets' standard deviations, you can see that we might be able to do better uh, than uh, have a lower variance than either asset. The equally weighted case that I gave a minute ago was one where the two assets had were at the same had the same expected return and the same variance, but this is quite a bit more general. So that's the expected return efficient portfolio frontier problem, and I wanted to show an example with real data that I computed, and that's what's up on the screen. The pink line. Takes two assets, uh, one is stocks and the other is bonds, uh, actually, um, yeah, uh, government bonds. And I computed the efficient portfolio frontier for uh, various. Uh, co- uh, well, it's the efficient portfolio frontier using the uh, formula I just gave you. So that uh, pink line here. This pink line here. Is the efficient portfolio frontier when we have only stocks and bonds to invest? And you can see the different points. I've calculated this using data from 1983 until 2006. And I computed all of the inputs to those equations that we just saw. I computed the expected, the average return on stocks over that time period. I computed the average return on bonds over that time period. These are long term government bonds. Uh, and I uh, now these are since they're long term they have some uncertainty and variability to them, and I computed the, uh, sigma one, sigma two, r one, and r two for those, and I plugged it into that formula which we just showed, and that's the curve that I got out. It shows the uh, standard the standard deviation of the return on the portfolio as a function of the expected return on the portfolio, and so. I can achieve any combination, I can achieve any point on that by choosing an allocation of my portfolio. So, this point right here is on the pink line is uh, a portfolio 100% bonds. And so, over this time period, that portfolio had an expected return of something like a little over 9%, and it had a ste- standard deviation of a little over 9%. Uh, this is a, a portfolio which is hundred percent stocks, and that portfolio uh, is uh, had a re- had a much higher uh, ex- average return or expected return uh, thirteen percent and but it also had a much higher uh, standard deviation of return it was about sixteen percent so you can see that uh, those are the two raw portfolios. That could be an investor only in bonds or an investor only in stocks. But I also show on here what some other returns are that are available. So uh, the minimum variance portfolio is down here. You see, that's got the lowest possible uh, standard deviation of expected return, and that's 25% stocks and 75% bonds with this sample period. Uh, but I can try other portfolios. This one right here, I'm pointing to a point on the pink line, that point right there 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Okay? And uh, you can see, and if you, you can also go up here. You can go beyond 100% stocks. You can have 150% stocks in your portfolio. That means you'd have a leveraged portfolio. You would be borrowing. If you had $1 to invest, you can borrow 50 cents and invest in $1.50 worth of stocks, right? That would put you out here. You would have very much more return, but you'd have more risk. Borrowing to buy stocks is going to be risky. Okay. You could also pick a point down here which is more than 100% bonds. How would you do that? Well, you could short the stock market. You could short $0.50 cents worth of stocks and buy 150 cents worth of bonds and that would put you down here. Any one of those things is possible. It's just the simple math that I just showed you. Okay? Do you have any idea what you would like to do, <laughs> assuming this? Well, if you're an investor, you don't like variance, right? And uh, uh, so you probably don't want to pick any point down here, right? Because uh, you're you're not getting anything by picking a point down there because you could have a better point by just moving up here. You'd have a higher expected return with no more variance. It's getting kind of complicated, isn't it? This, We started out with just the simple idea that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and if you had a lot of independent stocks, uh, you would uh, want to just weight them equally. But Now you see there's a lot of possibilities and, and, you, and uh, you, the, the outcome of your portfolio choice can be anything along this line. I, I'm not going to tell you what you want to do except to say, you would never pick a point below the minimum variance portfolio, right? Because if you did that, you would, um, you would always be dominated. You could always find a portfolio that had a higher expected return for the same standard deviation. So, uh, but beyond that, if you were confined to just stocks and bonds, it would be a matter of taste where along this frontier you would be. We call it an efficient portfolio frontier. Uh, you could, you could. It would be anywhere from here to here, depending on how much you're afraid of risk, uh, and how much you want expected return. Now we can also move to three assets, and uh, in fact to any number of assets, and the same formula extends to more assets. And in fact, I, uh, I have it. Uh, suppose we have three assets, and we want to compute. The efficient portfolio frontier, the mean and variance of the portfolio, okay, and so what I have up there on the diagram is calculations I made for the efficient portfolio frontier with three assets. so now we have n equals uh, three, and in the in the chart it 's stocks, bonds, and oil. Oil is a very important asset, and so we want to compute what uh, What that, uh, so we have, now we have uh, lots of inputs. We have, oh, let's put the inputs: the R1, R2, and R3 are the expected returns on the three assets. Then we have the standard deviations of the returns on the three assets. And then we have the covariance between the returns on the three assets. Uh, And there's three of them: sigma 1, 2, sigma 1, 3. And sigma 2, 3. Okay. Uh, and uh, that's what we have to know to compute the efficient portfolio frontier with three assets. So, to make this picture, I did that. I computed the returns on the stocks, bonds, and oil uh, for every year from 1983, and I computed the, expect- the average returns, which I take as the expected returns. I took the Standard deviations, and I took the covariance. These are all formulas. I just plugged it into formulas that we did in the second lecture. Okay? And so then what is the portfolio expected return? The portfolio expected return, we have to choose three things now X1, X2, and X3. X1 is the amount that I put into the first asset, X2 is the amount that uh, I put into the second asset, and X3. Is the amount I put into the third asset, and I'm going to constrain them to sum to one. So, uh, so the uh, return on the portfolio is x one r one plus x two r two plus x three r three, uh, and then the variance of the portfolio, sigma squared, is equal to x one squared r one. Uh, sigma 1 plus x2 squared, sigma 1 squared, sigma 2 squared, plus x3 squared, sigma 3 squared. And then we have to take account of all of the covariance terms. Plus 2 x1 x2 sigma 1 2 plus 2x1x3 sigma13 plus 2x2x3 sigma23. Okay, so is that clear enough? It it seems like a logical extension of that formula to three assets. And uh, you can easily see how to extend it to four or more assets. Right, it's just the logical extension of that. So what I did in this diagram is I computed the efficient portfolio frontier, and now it's the blue line with three assets. Okay. Uh, now, once you have more than three, more than two assets, it might be uh, uh, possible to get points inside the frontier. But I'm talking here. This is actually the frontier, the best possible. Portfolio consisting of three assets. And you can see that it dominates the pink line, right? When you add another asset, you do better. When you have three assets, you do better than if you just had two. And that's because there's more diversification possible with three assets than with two. And oil, bonds, and stocks are all independent, somewhat independent. They're not perfectly independent, but they're somewhat independent. And to the extent that they are, it lowers the variance. Now, you should see that the blue line is better than the pink line because for any expected return, the blue line is to the left of the pink line, right? So, for example, at an exp- annual expected return of 12%, if I have a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and oil, I can get a standard deviation of something like 8% on my portfolio. But if I would Confine myself just to stocks and bonds, I would get a much higher standard deviation. Are you following this? So the general principle of portfolio management is you want to include as many assets as you can. You want to get it. uh, If you keep adding assets, you can do better and better on your portfolio standard deviation. Uh, And so um, you can see some of the points I made along the blue line here. Uh, This is. Let me see. Do I have it? Uh, This is uh, this is a portfolio which has all oil and stocks and has no bonds. Uh, See, Um, this portfolio, the minimum variance portfolio, is nine percent oil, twenty-seven percent stocks, and sixty-four percent bonds. And those are the uh, uh, many choices you can make. Um, And so the the first. You see the idea here is that uh, in order to manage portfolios, what we want to do is calculate these statistics, which uh, the the expected returns on the various assets, the the standard deviations of the various assets, and you've got to know their covariances uh, because that affects the uh, variance of the portfolio. The more they covary, they move together; the less they cancel out. Uh, And so, uh, the higher the covariances, the generally the higher you can see from here. The higher the uh, sigma squared for the portfolio. And so, um, so is that clear? uh, There's one more thing that we can do. I have three assets shown here. I have stocks, bonds, and oil. but I want also to add one more final asset. We'll call it the riskless asset, which is the asset. Long-term bonds are somewhat uncertain and variable because they're long-term. But if we have an annual return that we're looking at, we can find a completely riskless asset. Which, if with an annual return, it would be a government bond that matures in one year. All right. Now, assuming that we trust the government, and I think the U.S. government has never defaulted on its debt, we take that as a riskless return. Okay, although it probably has some risk, but the way we approximate things in finance, we take the government as riskless. And so, uh, with the government uh, expected return, we want to make that uh, that expected return as a fourth asset. Uh, We could call it R4, but I'll call it R sub F it's a special asset. So R sub f is the riskless asset okay. Uh, and so what for it, uh, Sigma sub f equals 0. okay It's like a fourth asset, but we, we're using a special feature of this asset that it has no risk. okay? Moreover, uh, the correlation, the, sta- the, the covariance between any of these, sigma 1f equals 0, et cetera. It just doesn't have any risk to it. It has no variability. So, if we want to add that asset to the portfolio, uh, what it does is it produces an efficient portfolio frontier that is now a straight line, and I show that on the diagram. Uh, and so, th- the, the best possible portfolio that you can get. Would be points along this straight line. Uh, and that is the final uh, aspect of the efficient uh, portfolio calculations. I, again, I'm not able to give this as much of a uh, discussion as I would like because I don't want to spend uh, too much time on this. I, in the review sections, I'm hopeful that your uh, TAs can elaborate on this more. But there's a very important principle that finally comes out here is that you always want to reduce the variance of your portfolio as much as you can. And so that means that you want to pick ultimately a point on this t- th- this, this line is tangent to the efficient p- portfolio frontier with all the other assets in it. Tangent means that it has the same slope. It just touches the, ef- the efficient portfolio frontier for risky assets at one point. And the slope of the uh, efficient portfolio frontier, including the riskless asset, is a straight line that goes through the tangency point here. Uh, and that is the end of, I think that's the end of my mathematics. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but what I have shown here is how you calculate the, your portfolio management. The, the, the way you would go about it, if you're a portfolio manager is you have to come up with estimates of the inputs to these formulas. That means the expected returns, the standard deviations, and the covariances. You you take all the risky assets and you analyze them first to get their, uh, uh, you have to do a statistical analysis to get their expected returns, their variances, and their covariances. Once you've got them together, then you can compute the efficient portfolio Frontier without the riskless asset, and then finally, the final step is to find what is the tangency line uh, that goes through the riskless rate. Uh, it doesn't show it on this chart. It goes through five percent at a standard deviation of zero, and, uh, and then it touches the por- uh, risky asset efficient portfolio frontier at one point, and then. Uh, and then, from there, it uh, goes up above uh, in terms of higher expected return for the same variance. so that's the theory uh, of of uh, efficient portfolio calculation. Um, there's something that uh, a fundamental principle, and this is leading us in now to the institutional topic of this course, is that There's only one tangency portfolio, uh, and that portfolio is called the tangency portfolio, uh, where a a line drawn from the from the x-axis at the riskless rate is tangent to the efficient portfolio frontier, Um, and so the tangency portfolio. Is the portfolio that one should hold. And the uh, tangency portfolio gives rise to what's called the mutual fund theorem in finance, which says that w- all investors need is a single mutual fund. Uh, now, I haven't defined mutual fund yet. A mutual fund is an um, investment vehicle that allows investors to hold a portfolio. The theory of mutual funds is nobody is supposed to be holding anything other than, well the ideal theory of mutual funds is uh, holding something other than this tangency portfolio. So, why don't we set up a company that creates a, a portfolio like that, and investors can buy into that portfolio? And so, what this—if uh, if my analysis is right, namely, if I've got all of the right estimates of the expected returns on stocks, bonds, and oil, and the standard deviations and covariances, and I've—and assuming the interest rate is five percent, which is what I've assumed here—that this line, if you go to zero, it hits at five percent. It hits the vertical axis at five percent. Then. Everyone should be holding the tangency portfolio. And what is the tangency portfolio in this case? It's uh, 12% oil, 36% stocks, and 52% bonds. Uh, That's what I got using this sample period. Some people might disagree with that. They might not take my estimates. They might say my sample period was off. But that's what the theory using my data. Uh, for the sample period that I computed the expected returns and covariances, says one should do. So the theory says everybody should be investing in these proportions. Uh, and this theory then um, it doesn't leave any uh, latitude for individual choice, except that you can choose which mixture of the mutual fund, and the riskless asset you want to. So, somebody who is very risk averse could say, I want to hold only the riskless asset because I, I, I just don't like any risk at all. That person, I should have maybe included it on in the diagram, but that person could get 5% return with no risk. Somebody else might say, Well, I want to just hold this point. I want to hold the tangency portfolio. That's attractive to me because. Uh, I could then get a bigger expected return. I could get almost 12% return per year and I'd sacrifice, I'd have some standard deviation of like 8%, but if that's what I want, uh, if, if I have different tastes about risk then, and that's what I want, that, then that's the optimal thing to do. Other people might say, well, you know, I'm really uh, an adventurer. I don't care too much about risk. Uh, I want the, a much higher return. Such a person might pick a point up here. And that would be a portfolio with um, a leveraged portfolio. That would be a portfolio where you borrowed at the riskless rate and you put more than 100% of your money into the tangency portfolio. So, uh, what you could do is say borrow 50 cents on your dollar and put 150 cents into uh, a portfolio which consisted of 9% oil. 27% 27% stocks and 64% bonds, but everyone would do that. No one would ever hold some other portfolio because you can see that this line is the lowest. It, it's as far, you want to get to the left as far as possible. You want to, for any given ex- expected return, you want to minimize the standard deviation. So It's the leftmost line and that means that everyone will be holding the same portfolio. Uh, I don't claim that my analysis is profound in the final answer. I just Took some estimates using my data, and again, we could. If someone wanted to argue with this, they could argue with my estimates of 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 the expected returns, of the standard deviations, and the covariances, but not with this theory. This theory is very rigorous. So if you if you agree with my estimates, then you should do this (laughs) as an investor. You should hold only some mixture of this uh, tangency portfolio, which is 9% oil. 27% 27% stocks and 64% bonds. Do you see what we've got here? I started out with the equally weighted, I, I was talking about stocks, uh, about uh, n stocks that all have the same variance and are all independent of each other. But I've d- I dropped that assumption, and now I'm going on to assuming that they're taking account of their dependence on each other, taking account of their different expected returns, and taking account of their different covariances and variances. So that's what we've got. This is a famous framework. It's the kind of the, this diagram. is, I think the most famous diagram in all of financial theory, and so it's uh, it's actually the first theoretical diagram. Uh, I did it myself using my data, but it would always look more or less like this. It would Be slightly different positions if people use different estimates. So I actually showed this diagram. I, I went to um, Norway. Uh, with my colleague. I actually have a, a couple more pictures here. Um, I was <laughs> that's my colleague, Ranit Walney, and I, who showed. That's, we're posing in front of the Parliament building in Oslo. Uh, we went to Norway to t- discuss uh, the, uh, with the Norwegian government uh, their portfolio. And I, I, this is a slide that I showed them. I showed them the slide that I just showed you. Showing the uh, optimal portfolio. And then I looked at the U- Norwegian government's uh, position. Uh, the the uh, Norwegian government has pension fund assets in the amount of, a- as of 2006, of just under uh, a two, 2 trillion Norwegian kroner. Uh, but they also own North Sea oil. And if you know that, it's kind of divided between the UK and Norway. Uh, Norway is a much smaller population than the U.K. So, and they have a lot of oil up there <laughs> in, the, in the North Sea. So as of then, I calculated the value of their oil in the North Sea, OK? And that's what I got. It's worth about uh, uh, 35, uh, uh, 3.5 billion Norwegian kroner. Um, you see the difference. Uh, in fact, the assets that the Norwegian government owns is about two thirds oil and one third uh, government pension fund assets. Uh, this government pension fund I guess in dollars it 's about uh, two hundred billion uh, and so it 's a huge amount of money that they 're managing. but I was trying to convince them <laughs> uh, that they should do something to manage their uh, their oil risk because they 're way over invested in oil, right? So, where are they on the efficient portfolio frontier? Uh, actually, I can activate this thing. Uh, it, they have 64% oil in their portfolio. Uh, where does that put them? Well, it's not. It's really off the diagram. The, the furthest point that I recorded was twenty-eight percent oil. That puts them there. So if they, if you wanted to, it, it, where would it be? It would be somewhere over there, off the charts. And so what the Norwegian government is doing wrong is, uh, and, and I, it was a little bit controversial <laughs> pointing this out to them. I ended up in the newspaper uh, the next day for having an They, they are way off on their on their investment. Opportunities uh, because uh, oil is such a volatile thing. They've got so much of their assets tied up in oil. Um, so I got a good hearing. We went to the Ministry of Finance and we went to the um, uh, Norges, Norges Bank, which is their central bank. And I think the answer I got from them was yes, you're right. I, I never got quite like that. <laughs> something like that. Uh, th- 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 there was a, a, a conditional agreement yes, Norway should. Manage this oil risk, Um, but then uh, there's it's politically difficult, and that's the problem. Is that we're not we're not able to do our optimal management. Maybe there's a a number of structural problems that prevent them from doing that, and they think maybe that. I think Norway may may be moving that way, so we'll we'll see in the future. I went to the Bank of Mexico. I tried to convince the—I I met the president of the Bank of Mexico—and tried to tell them that Mexico is too reliant on oil, too much oil. They have to get rid of their risk. And I'm, I'm going to the Russian Stabilization Fund in March. I think I've got an arrangement to meet with them in Moscow in Mar- That'll be during the semester, and I'll, I'll tell you what reaction I—I hope I get from the Russians. Uh, but uh, you know, Ru- oil is very important to the Russian economy. Uh, and are they managing the risk well? I bet not. Uh, I'm going to do a diagram like this uh, for Russia. <laughs> uh, and uh, the countries that really matter are the uh, ones that uh, the Arabian, or the uh, Persian Gulf countries. And I was just talking to people at the World Economic Forum about that. Some of those countries are really reliant on oil. And so they really have to do, they really should do a calculation uh, of uh, efficient portfolio frontiers. One of the lessons of this course is we have a wonderful theory, uh, but we don't manage it well mostly. And I don't mean to be criticizing foreign countries. The same criticism applies to the United States as well. We're in a different position. Where are we on this frontier regarding oil in the United States? Well, we don't have much oil relative to the size of our portfolio. I don't know what percent. Oil reserves in the U.S. are pretty small. so, we're kind of lying somewhere inside, on, maybe on this pink line. So, uh, people in the US don't have the optimal portfolio either. So, I, I, I set up a theoretical framework here, and um, I wanted to uh, uh, give you. But I, I mentioned oil because it seems to make it to me so clear what we're talking about here. It's talking about not getting tied up in risks. And so I, I was talking to someone in, at the World Economic Forum from an, um, an Arabian uh, or, or a Persian Gulf country, and I said, uh, um, "Aren't you worried about <laughs> are worried about reliance on oil?" And he said, "Of course we're worried on reliance. So much, uh, s- uh, so much of our GDP and of our government revenues are, are oil related. We've seen the price of oil lately move all over the map. Went up to hundred dollars recently." And it was just uh, as late as late 1990s. It was under twenty dollars, and people just don't know where it's going to go. Uh, so I think that we uh, th- and and these countries are somewhat trying to manage this oil risk, but they can't yet get onto the frontier. And that's a sign to me that uh, that um, uh, we're not uh, we're not there yet, and we have a lot more to do in in finance. Uh, So there's one more equation that I wanted to write down, and I'm going to not. uh, uh, It's uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this uh, because it's um, uh, it's going to it's going to take a while. But that this is the equation that uh, that relates the expected return on an asset, and in the its so-called capital asset pricing model, in the capital asset pricing model. In finance, I'm getting chalk. That's okay. This is the most famous model in finance, Uh, and it's abbreviated as the CAPM. I'm not going to do it justice here. I'm sorry, but there's so many uh, ins and outs of this. You should really take uh, econ 251 to learn this more. Uh, But it uh, it was a model divided by James Tobin here at Yale uh, was the original. uh, uh, We got the original precursors, but it was more uh, uh, invented by. William Sharp, John Lintner, Harry Markowitz. Uh, and uh, all, every one of these except Lintner, I think, won the Nobel Prize. Lintner didn't get it, did he? I think he died too young. That's the misfo- one of the misfortunes of living. Um, <laughs> did I say that right? <laughs> one of the misfortunes of scholarship. You have to uh, live long enough to get your accolades. Um, but the capital asset pricing model, and this is a critical, assumes everyone is rational and and holds the tangency portfolio. So. Uh, that is a wild assumption, but it's fun to make uh, <laughs> because uh, I, I know pretty well—I know very well—that <laughs> people aren't doing this, uh, and they have lots of maybe good reasons. Maybe it's not because they're irrational; it's that they're political or they're um, they're constrained by tradition or laws or uh, regulations, all sorts of things. But they're not holding the mark- tangency portfolio. But it's a beautiful theory uh, to assume. See what would happen if they did. Uh, That would mean that everybody is holding that same portfolio of risky assets, and nobody is different. Uh, They only differ in how, what proportions they hold the risky, the the tangency portfolio. Uh, And so it implies that the tangency portfolio has to equal the uh, actual. Market portfolio, and that means then it's a very simple implication of the theory. Uh, In my diagram, I said that the tangency portfolio, or I estimated that the tangency portfolio is 9% oil, 27% stocks, and 64% bonds. So, if we're all doing that, then that has to be what the outstanding is. If we're all holding the same portfolio, that has to be the the total. So that would mean that 9% of all wealth is stocks, 27% of all, no, I'm sorry, is oil. 27% of all wealth is stocks, and 64% is bonds. And so if you accept my estimates and you accept the capital asset pricing model, that would have to be true. Again, I don't want to make too much of my estimates because different people would estimate these things in different ways. But that's the theory. The theory says that the uh, tangency portfolio equals the optimal portfolio, uh, and then that gives us the, f- uh, the famous equation. And I'm not going to derive this, but there's the f- the most famous equation in finance. Says, can you read that? That's R sub i, the r- expected return on the uh, i-th asset is equal to the riskless rate plus something called the beta for the i-th asset. Times the expected return on the market minus the riskless rate. Uh, Now again, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but uh, the the beta of the ith asset is the regression coefficient when you regress the return on the ith asset on the return of the market portfolio, and R sub M is the expected return. On the market portfolio, which is the uh, portfolio of all assets. Uh, the market portfolio is if you took all the stocks and bonds and oil and real estate, anything that's available to invest in in the whole world, put them all together in one portfolio, uh, it, it's the world portfolio, it's everything. And we compute the expected return on that portfolio. Uh, that's our sub m, okay. And also, we need to know how much individual stocks are correlated with uh, what uh, with our sub m. We, we measure that by the regression coefficient. So uh, the beta of a stock is how much it reacts to movements in the market portfolio. If beta equals one, it means that if the market portfolio goes up ten percent in value, then This asset also goes up ten percent in value. If beta is two, it means that if the um, uh, market goes up ten percent in value, the stock tends to go up twenty percent in value, and so on. So uh, these are the basic theoretical structures that you incidentally need for the problem set. uh, The first problem set. So the first problem set. I I guess you you can turn in your first problem set here. uh, before you leave because it was due today. The second problem set is about this model and so I realize I've given you some uh, difficult mathematics, but um, it's not that difficult actually, but I kind of went through it quickly. Uh, So, uh, uh, we we are setting up our You you have already gotten email and you've talked about setting up your review session, so I keep getting caught here. so I have a few more minutes here. So, uh, what I wanted to do I wanted to talk about um, uh, Jeremy Siegel's book and the uh, equity premium puzzle. Uh, underlying this analysis, uh, we we have estimates of the expected returns on uh, assets, notably the expected returns on stocks and bonds. Um, and um, So uh, Jeremy Siegel, uh, I- I- his book, which is uh, assigned for this course, uh, com- it's really emphasizing this capital asset pricing model, emphasizing the kind of efficient portfolio frontier calculations that I've done. And so what uh, Siegel emphasized the book is really about this. He talks about what is the expected return of stocks and what is the expected return of bonds and so on. So uh, we're going to call asset one stocks in the U.S. and we're going to call asset two bonds. Okay. And so he estimates for his purposes, and he shows you calculations of the efficient portfolio frontier. But I wanted to just Talk a little bit about his estimate. He has data for a very long time period, 1802 to 2006, uh, okay, for the US. All right. Uh, And um, uh, over that very long time interval, um, the expected return uh, that w- uh, we got for st- uh, stocks was um, uh, 6.8% a year in real terms. This is real, inflation corrected, whereas for bonds it was, uh, over this whole time period, 2.8% a year real. OK? And then he also computes Sigma 1 and Sigma 2 and Sigma 1,2, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. The, the, the real intre- and so then he computes the efficient portfolio frontier. Now he's using a much longer sample than I did, and so he's not going to get this uh, 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 tangency portfolio that I did. The thing that is very interesting that he finds is the difference. Four percent between the, uh, the historical real return on stocks. And the historical real return on bonds. And so this is called the equity premium. Actually, I should take that back. This is really R sub F. He shows all three. Uh, R sub F that I'm reporting is the riskless rate. Uh, there's also, if you look on uh, table one in chapter one, it shows uh, R1 stocks, R2. Uh, long-term bonds, and these are short-term that I'm reporting here. So the equity premium is the uh, th- this short-term 2.8 percent is the riskless return historically for a period of uh, almost 200 years, and this is the return on stocks for a period of almost 200 years. So stocks have paid 4 percent more a year. Over this incredibly long time period, than short-term bonds. Uh, also, they've paid much more than long-term. Well, it's not so different. Let me. This, this <laughs> I don't have the data in front of me. So, uh, but let's emphasize the difference between R1 and RF. It surprises many people that stocks have paid such an enormous premium over uh, over the uh, return on short-term debt. Uh, and so, the theme of Siegel's book uh, is Can we believe this? I mean, do you really? You, you might wonder, aren't people missing something <laughs> if, uh, if the excess return is so high of, bo- of stocks over short term bonds? Uh, why would anyone not just hold a lot of really large number of stocks? So that's the theme of his book. And his book is that his conclusion is that he largely believes that this is true. Uh, that the, the um, returns that we have seen in the U.S. in the stock market uh, have exceeded those of other uh, assets uh, by uh, quite a substantial margin, and that that means his calculations are very different than the ones I have because he has a much longer sample period. I was using only from eight 1983 to the present. For him, the optimal portfolio should be very heavily in the stocks. Uh, Now, this is a controversial view, but that is the view that he advances in the book, and I think it's a very interesting analysis. Uh, uh, So, what it means then is that the uh, optimal portfolio should not be the one I show there, but should be one that's very heavily into stocks. And uh, this is, uh, uh, I'm showing here US data, but. Siegel also argues, in, in the latest edition, uh, that the equity premium is also high for advanced countries over the whole world. So, if you look at his book, uh, in the t- and again in the first chapter, uh, he gives a list of countries. It's based on an analysis that uh, some other, that the professors Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton. Used in their book, 2002 book. But uh, they show the expected return on stocks versus bonds uh, or short term debt for uh, a whole range of countries. And in every one of these countries since 19, uh, 1901, there has been a very high equity premium. So uh, I'll let you read Siegel and his discussion of this. Possibility, but I think that what I want to get now is not necessarily any agreement on whether you believe that there's such a high excess return for stocks. But I just want you to understand the basic framework. So the first problem set asks you to manipulate the model that I just presented, the the model of how you form portfolios and the the model of of the capital asset pricing model. And I have one final question just about the mutual fund industry. The mutual fund industry is supposedly, according to theory, doing this for you. So the ideal thing would be that the mutual fund does these calculations and it puts it all together for you. So, at least in some approximate sense, that's what they are doing. Uh, and so I asked you in the final question to just get on a couple of websites the Federal Reserve and the ICI, which is a mutual fund industry uh, website. And write a little bit, a couple paragraphs about what this industry is really achieving, or how it's how it's trending. Okay. And so next Wednesday, there's three lectures this week. Wednesday will be about the insurance industry, and I'll, I'll see you in two days then.